some of you may have seen me turning and talking to uh, Tom after the confession. Um, and I just want to, if it's okay with you, Tom, I'd like to share whatever we were talking about. I so appreciated his confession this morning. I don't know if you thought much about what he said. Um, I think what, what Tom had to say this morning is really, really important. Um, because what, what I was sharing with Tom after his confession was this. I'll be real brief on it, but because I find for me it's very easy for me to look at the big ticket items, what he was talking about, and saying, yeah, absolutely, and recognizing oftentimes in other people recognizing in other people, and even in my own life, the big things that are not consistent with what Tom talked about this morning in the confession. But I'll share with Tom is one of the things that has been, the Lord's been really working on my heart about lately is the subtleties of it all. Because, for example, is it good to know the Scriptures? The answer is obviously what? Yes. It really is. Is it good to store and hide the word in your heart that you may not sin against God? If you say no on that one, we got issues, right? Because <laughs> I just quoted the scripture. Correct? I mean, it is good. Is it good to know your theology? That is, to know God. Yeah. Is it good to evangelize? Yes. Is it good to be a light in the midst of darkness? Yes. And you know what I find myself so often? So often. For example, I get into a discussion with somebody who disagrees with me on theology, and I'll win the discussion. That is, the person will realize that what I was saying was right. And you know what I start to do right away, metaphorically speaking? Good job, Steve. What was that all about? Should I not be like that gentleman in the scriptures who did the exact same thing I just did? And what did he say? Yes, he said, have mercy upon me because I'm a sinner. <laughs> Isn't that the appropriate response? Isn't it? But so often that's not my response. So often, quite to the contrary, my response is, exactly what Tom was talking about this morning. That was a real challenge to me, Tom. Really an important challenge. I think it's an important challenge to all of us. So I really, I for one, really, really appreciate that. It was a very challenging and good reminder. Um, and as I was saying with t to Tom, is that the, the subtleties are really where we live, isn't it? That's where we live. And we know all these different things are sinful. <laughs> But it's in the subtleties that we don't realize how much that we are actually in, in opposition to God and the things of God. It's in the very good things that we do, oftentimes. Because it's all an issue of the motive of our hearts, isn't it, Tom? It just really is. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, and that would humble us, wouldn't it? <laughs> when we realize that He's the source and He's the fuel of it all, all the way through to the completion, right? And so, does any praise belong to me? No. No. I'm reminded of that story that Jesus told about the servant, the slave who works out in the field. And at the end of it all, He comes in and feeds the Master, right? He prepares the food and feeds the Master. And His response ultimately is what? What have I done? Nothing. i just done what was required. A little different perspective than the way we live life, isn't it? So I appreciate that. Thank you, Tom. It was a good, good reminder. With that in mind, whoa, that was loud. Can we turn that down some, somebody? <laughs> At least in my ears, it was loud. It kind of just blasted my ears. With that in mind, um, let's jump into our text this morning. We're still in, of course, chapter 13. And, of course, we're still in the first missionary journey of Paul. He's now being recognized as Paul, not Saul anymore. 
Tom read the, the text to us, so we don't need to reread it. We're going to pause on places and examine things. We'll probably eventually we'll read the whole thing once again. But you see, it's now a week later from our study last week. The week before, we had uh, Paul getting up and declaring the truth of Christ's uh, salvation brought to people through his sacrifice. And we have him laying that all out, especially as we focused on last week, the end of his message, which is the application of his message. That is either uh, we will be blessed, which we saw in 38 and 39, um, if, we, if we believe we'll be freed. Uh, but then 40 and 41, if we, if we do not repent, we'll be astounded and perished. And that's the, the delineation of it all that we saw in the, in the previous text. And we see those who have embraced the truth of, of the gospel that Paul was preaching, 42 through 43, um, continue to hang out with Paul and they want more. And the response that Paul gives to them is he continues, uh, and Barnabas too, they, he, he continues to urge them, they both continue to urge them to continue in the grace of God. We talked about that last week, we don't want to develop it any further. A week later, it's the next Saturday, and Paul and Barnabas are on their way to the temple once, or the, the synagogue once again. And you'll see that it says in verse 44, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's an astounding statement, isn't it? And the backstory to that astounding statement is because it wasn't almost the whole city that was there the week before. What's amazing about it is that means in six days something dramatic happened. Because we know it didn't happen most likely on the Sabbath day the week before because first, as they left, they talked to Paul and Barnabas and they heard on and on about continuing the grace of God. Well, after that, in the Sabbath, they can't do much, can they? It's a Sabbath. If they're adherents to the Old Testament law at all, and they were, those who were there the first Saturday, they're not doing anything at that point in time, but doing what? Going back to their homes. That's what they're doing. It's a day of rest. But then come Sunday through Friday, these people who were encouraged to continue and urged to continue in the grace of God, something changed in them, did it not? What changed was what? What was the evidence that the change took place? That a change had taken place in them? Got to think about the text, verse 44. The evidence is that they were out doing what? All week long. They were telling others, weren't they? They were proclaiming what? The grace of God. That's what they're proclaiming. For six days they've been proclaiming the grace of God as heard from Paul and Barnabas. And they, in the midst of that, they're telling these people what? You want to know more about it? Paul and Barnabas said they'd be back at the synagogue next Saturday. And so what happens? Now remember, this is not primarily a Jewish area now. Primarily a Gentile area. There are Jews there, and then there are other people we saw last week that are devout followers. That is, they've proselytized to Judaism, but they are in reality what? Gentiles. But then, in verse 44, something changes. A week later, almost the whole city gathers to hear the word of the Lord. The people are intrigued. The Gentiles, primarily, by the way, because the Jews would have been at the synagogue, wouldn't they have? So primarily, Gentiles now are intrigued about the message of the grace of God. They're intrigued enough that they're taking their Sabbath and doing something they don't do every Saturday. They're going to the synagogue. Verse 45, we see that there's a problem. It says in verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they are what? They're jealous, aren't they? Because they never see these kind of crowds at the synagogue, do they? Because they're in a primarily Gentile area. So they don't see these kind of crowds of the Gentiles, I'm sorry, of the Gentiles at the synagogue, but this week they do. This Saturday, this Sabbath day, they do, and they know the reason why. 
The people came to hear more about Jesus. The people came to hear more about the Messiah that had been promised. The people came to hear more about the grace of God. And it says here, the Jews saw the crowds and they were filled with jealousy. Now it's important. It doesn't say all the Jews here, does it? It doesn't say all the Jews are jealous. We know that there are some Jews, along with the devout ones, that are really intrigued and drawn to the Gospel, right? We saw that in the previous week. Most people think that it's probably the Jewish leaders of the synagogue. But I would probably extend it out to any of the rest of the Jews that were there the Sunday before or the Saturday before that weren't captivated by the Spirit uh, with regard to the, the uh, Messiahship of Jesus. But it doesn't say all of them, but certainly there is a, a pretty good group of Jews here, pretty good-sized group of Jews, it probably most likely including the, um, uh, at least some of the leaders. It says they're jealous because of the crowd. They're filled. Notice it's not that they're just a little bit jealous, is it? They are absolutely consumed with their jealousy. And the result, according to verse 45, they begin to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him, the, the ESV says. Interesting way that it's put here. There's three things. Number one, they're filled with jealousy, right? Being filled with jealousy drives them to begin to respond. And as they respond their response to Paul and Silas is that they start to contradict. That is, if we're understanding this correctly, and I think we must, the contradiction is, has to be, Jesus is, you're wrong, Paul. You're wrong, Barnabas. Jesus isn't the Messiah. This is not just contradicting little nuance interpretation of text. This is a contradicting the, 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 the message. When you say that Isaiah 7 is talking about Jesus, you're wrong. Jesus isn't the Messiah. He's not the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, for example. When you say that in Isaiah, Isaiah 52 that it's talking about Christ's crucifixion, you are wrong. It has nothing to do with that. Because Christ isn't the, isn't the Messiah. And it's interesting, it brings us to the third statement in verse 45. It says, they were contradicting what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now, reviling is an interesting word here. When you, when, you he, when you hear the word reviling, what do you think of? Say it. Hatred? Violently opposed? Any other ideas? It actually comes out of the word. It actually flows. It's a form of the word that you know of as heretic. Act, the word reviling him is really the idea of hereticking him. Does that make sense? In other words, the reviling of him is, the idea is we're doing everything we possibly can do, everything we possibly say to put him in a certain category of, 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 of religious rejection. So, both Paul and Silas these Jews are focusing on them, contradicting their message of Jesus' Messiahship, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and attempting is, as aggressively as they possibly can to move him and Barnabas and their message into a position or a category that is actual revulsion, hatred, rejection, heretical. Get the picture? I mean, later on they'll add in stoning, imprisonment, beatings with rods, that type of thing. This is, this is that same thing without the physicality of it. Does that make sense? It's complete moving of Paul and Barnabas as well as their message outside of true 
religion into absolute heresy, absolutely heretical, an absolute heretical position. It's interesting how Paul responds. The, the response is beautiful. Verse 46, and Paul, Paul and Barnabas both spoke out boldly, saying, I want to pause on that for a second. I'm going to stop on that statement for a second. It's a, it, it is such a clear statement in what we just read. Especially if you were listening last um, um, Wednesday night in the message that I gave Wednesday night. It is interesting how Paul and Barnabas are stated as responding here. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, they spoke out how? Boldly. Boldly. And the idea here of boldly is this, simply said, they directly addressed the charges. They didn't try to smooth over the differences. Quite to the contrary, they clarified the di differences. They, they did what they could do to bring the differences into even, Nikki, you'll appreciate this statement, even better focus. Get the picture? You can, I, I choose you, Nikki, because of photography. You know, you know how, how when you focus a camera, you get it in focus, and you say, eh, let's try even better, right? And you work on it even if you're using manual focus until you get it exactly perfect. Why? Why do you do that? So it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the clearest picture. It's obvious, right? So it's the clearest picture possible. So the definitions are as dark as they can be. And then sometimes you get on the computer and you even do more, don't you? Since we can do it on computers now, you get the picture as well, don't you? That's what you do. Why? Because you don't want any doubt, right? You don't want any fuzziness. That's what it means here when it says Paul and Barnabas heard what they said. They're contradicting them and they spoke to bring it into absolute focus in such a way that there is no doubt exactly where Paul and Barnabas stood with regard to Jesus. There was no question. No one could leave this moment in time and say, I'm not exactly sure where Paul and Barnabas stands on this thing. If they weren't, it's almost like you'd hear Paul and Barnabas saying, in case you didn't get it last time. Because they haven't spoken yet, right? Immediately, the, these Jews started contradicting and trying to not just marginalize, but hereticize Paul and Barnabas. They haven't even spoke yet. And they get up and they respond with absolute clarity. Absolute focus. Th thus saith the Lord. Type of communication. So they speak boldly. So again, verse 46, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. <laughs> oh my goodness. I just want to stop in this for a second, friends. Put yourself in a situation, just create in your mind, a situation where you have preached the gospel and the people who have received the gospel, some of them are opposing you. Verbally opposing you. Today there's a phrase that's given oftentimes. It is this. There's ways to say things and ways to say things. Right? You've heard that before, haven't you? It's very common. There's ways to say things and ways to say things. I, you've heard me say this before, but I, I, know of, I, I know very closely know a pastor of a very large church who very vocally has said, best confrontation is a confrontation where the person doesn't know they've been confronted. <laughs> and I said to that gentleman, I said, you show me that in the Scriptures. Because that's kind of foreign to the Scriptures. 
This is a classic example. What does he do? Well, we're going to find out in just a second. He takes him to the Scriptures right away, doesn't he? But he does what? He brings to absolute clarity, both Paul and Barnabas bring to absolute clarity, no matter what the cost, no matter what the consequence, no matter anything, brings it right to the focus as he speaks to the Jewish people here that are opposing him and contradicting them and says, it was necessary. No mincing of words here. No thinking, how can I say this politically in such a way that it will be received well? So that I don't lose friends. <laughs> Use whatever terms you want. It was necessary that the Word of God be spoken first to you. And of course, he's basing that upon a scripture of the Old Testament. Very scripture, but he quotes one in just a second. Since you thrust it aside... Huh? Yeah. Since you thrust it aside, you get it's not just rejected, but when he says, since you thrust it aside, do you sense the active nature of it? Do you get the picture of if I'm gonna use the illustration? Rebellious child. Infant. Sometimes it's child, sometimes it's not, but rebellious child is sitting in his high chair. The food is placed in front of him that you, mom, if mom is the cook have made lovingly for his benefit. Get the picture? You set it on the plate and on the tray in front of him, he looks at it and he doesn't look at you and say, um, I don't want green beans, I'd prefer ravioli. Does he? Any chance I could have ravioli instead, Mom? Is that what he says? No. What happens? He doesn't just start crying, does he? And in, by the way, the crying is the contradicting of the previous verse, isn't it? But Jim, what did Steph do? <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to offend you there, Stephanie. What, she did the same thing we all did, right? We just reached out, grabbed that plate, and thrust it away from us all over the floor, didn't we? Right? Get the picture? That's exactly what he's talking about here. This is a very aggressive, very active rejection, but it is very evident, just the hurling, the thrusting of it away. What he says next is really interesting to these Jews. Since you thrust it aside, this is the one that warped my brain a little bit. The very next statement, and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. That's a weird way of putting it, isn't it? I would think it would be just the opposite. Judge the message of eternal life as unworthy. Wouldn't that make a whole lot more sense? Judge the message of eternal life unworthy? That makes more sense to me initially. But that's not what he says. Paul and Barnabas say to him, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. That's an intriguing way of putting it. I wrestled with this for the longest time. What does that mean? And I think what Paul and Barnabas are getting to here is be, when he says you've judged yourself unworthy of eternal life, I think what he's saying is this. Your judgment of yourself is all wrong. He's talking about this. Because we're all unworthy of eternal life, aren't we? Of course we are. But what he's saying is you're judging yourself unworthy of eternal life because you're judging yourself worthy of gaining it yourself. In other words, the Jews get the message. Don't they? They get the message, but they're rejecting it because the, the true message is what? You're unworthy. You need someone who is worthy. And instead they're saying, we're working hard at it, so we are therefore worthy. And we're not worthy of that. And he's saying to them, in twisting words, he's saying, you're right. <laughs> 
but you're thinking the message is unworthy, but in reality, you are unworthy from a judgmental standpoint on the ultimate judge. Does that make sense? You're unworthy from God's perspective. You think it's from your perspective, but it's really from God's. And so, in other words, what Paul is saying, ultimately, rather than being unworthy like the person we were talking about who beat his chest earlier, you're saying we're unworthy because we think there's something better and we're worthy of that better standard. He's saying the reality is you're going to find out in Judgment Day you are unworthy, but then it's too late and you're going to hear what? Depart from me, I never knew you. So you are right. You're wrong in the way you're thinking about it, but you're right, you're unworthy, but your unworthiness results in condemnation. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, realize the the, the truth. We are turning to the... And what a horror for the Jews. To the Gentiles. We are turning to the Gentiles. And that's when he quotes the verse. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, here's the verse from Isaiah, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now it's interesting, this passage, I think it's from Isaiah 49, if I remember correctly. Um, interestingly enough, am I correct on that? I saw you were looking. What? 49.6. 49, there you go. 49.6. Uh, the passage has historically be under, been understood to have three applications. I'm going to argue there are four. But it has historically been understood to have three applications. I'll read it again. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In the context of Isaiah 49, there's no question you can't miss the point that the immediate context, the immediate application is for the Jewish nation. You can't miss it. It's there if you read the immediate context. So in effect, one of the applications of this passage is to the Israel nation in the Old Testament, I have made you, Israeli nation, the Israelites, a light for the Gentiles. That's why I chose you. Part of why I chose you is to spread the light, right, of Yahweh, to be a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. However, we know the history, correct? That's not what happened, is it? At all. The more important application of the passage in Isaiah 49 is this, however. It is clearly an application... Let me change that. It's clearly a messianic passage. In fact, you'd have to recognize that in Isaiah uh, 39 all the way through 66, the entirety of that section is all messianic. It's all about the suffering servant, Jesus, and the ramification of His sufferings. And one of the ramifications of His sufferings come out in Isaiah 49 when He says, I've made you a light for the Gentiles. In other words, the, the message of God, the message of salvation is not going to stay with the Jews. It's much more important than to keep it isolated. It will go to the ends of the earth. Thirdly, the application is not just to the Jews' Old Testament and the Jewish nation Old Testament, but it's to Jesus' Gospels and ongoing. But because Paul is a representative as a believer, correct? And as an apostle of Jesus Christ... He is called to do what? Be an apostle to the Gentiles. You saw that in the chapter on his conversion, chapter 9. It was brought into bear and to light there. Paul takes that passage in Isaiah 49 and applies it to himself. Third application. God is telling him and he's declaring to the Jews who are, who are rejecting and contradicting him and hereticizing him. This had to happen. What you're doing had to happen. 
And the reason why it had to happen is because first it had to go to the Jews so that they could reject Exhibit A so that then it could go to the Gentiles. Therefore, the passage Isaiah 49, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth is for Paul. Fourth application, which almost nobody ever talks about. Just Although Paul was an apostle, but he also was a representative, I choose the word real clearly, a representative, right, of Jesus and his message, correct? So are all believers. I would argue another appropriate, as representatives of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished on the cross, this passage has application to all believers. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Is that ever demonstrated as applicable to us anywhere else in the Scripture? Well, the Great Commission. Matthew 28. Acts chapter 2. You will receive power. Right? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. We talked about that when we went, went through Acts chapter 2. How that was not just for the Apostles. You will be witnesses, my witnesses, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and where? The ends of the earth, the uttermost part of the earth, which is to the Gentiles. He saved us for a purpose. And Paul references that here. So there's fourfold application there. 48. Something changes all of a sudden. The Jews didn't change, did they? And we know that's the case. Because the rest of the way on, from here on out, how how do Jews primarily respond to Paul's message from here on out? Rejection, hatred, despising, and from here on out they will forever do what? For the most part, hereticism, if I may coin that term. That's what it means. They're going to do everything they can to move him and and anybody who brings the message into the category of heresy. Will they not? They absolutely will. There are exceptions. But for the most part, what does Paul say later on? God, in in, in 2 Timothy, what does he say? I think it's 2 Timothy. He says that he is continuing to do what? Blind their eyes. Correct? Now there are some exceptions. But to this present day, that's still the case, is it not? There are exceptions. There are some Jews that are getting saved. But for the most part, it's a blinding of the eyes. Why? That salvation may go to where? The Gentiles. What happens immediately after this declaration by Paul and Barnabas? Notice. And... When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. You see that? They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. We're going to skip over for a moment the next statement in 48, just for a moment, because I want to stay in that statement. So you see, rejoicing and glorifying. They began immediately upon hearing the truth that the Gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. The Gentiles' response, who are the Gentiles that are responding with, joy, with rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord? Who are these Gentiles? What's that? They're part of the crowd, that's correct, but they're the ones who are continuing... And now the second week are learning for the first time what? Yes! They're continuing in the grace of God. They're, they're, they're continuing in, 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 in the walk that started either the Sabbath before or during the week as those people began to proclaim. Does that make sense? They start rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. Notice verse 49. The other results. So the first results are what? Rejoicing. And glorifying. You see that? Next, verse 49, 
And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Does that sound like Acts chapter 2? It does, doesn't it? Here in chapter 13, we're seeing Acts chapter 2. Judea, Samaria, I'm sorry, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth, at the ends of the earth. What's happening here in this region? The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Why was it spreading? Verse 48, right? If you're rejoicing and glorifying, how can it but spread? Right? How can it but spread? It's got to spread, doesn't it? It's got to. Verse 50, but the Jews inside the devout women, we'll get back to verse 50 in a second. I'm sorry, I'm going to skip over that. Notice verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, I just skipped over 50 through 51 to jump to 52, so I took away the context of the text temporarily. We'll see it in a second what the context is. But I want you to notice those newly saved Gentiles are doing what again? Rejoicing, glorifying, and, and evangelizing and spreading, right? Isn't that what's happening? And the disciples, referring to those new converts as well as the apostles, or in this case, Paul and Barnabas, right? Because they are also disciples, are filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. What does that mean, filled with joy? What do you think that means? Filled with, it's easy to skip over the statement, filled with joy, and, and not really think about what it says. And we, and, we, and, we, and we just think, well, you know, they're joyful. There, it's the same words, right? Filled with joy, joyful, joyful. Same, same words, right? So we say, well, we're joyful. Or they had joy. But what does it really mean, filled with joy? Words mean something, and they chose these words. Filled with joy. Controlled by joy. What else? Consumed with the new purpose. Good. Consumed. What else does it mean? Any ideas? Okay. Step outside of joy, outside the text for a second. Let me just help you out. It's Thanksgiving afternoon. Families together. Think about the Norman Rockwell painting. There's a massive turkey in the middle of the room. Middle of the table. Still in the middle of the room. Massive turkey. Steam is rolling off the turkey. There's a mountain of mashed potatoes and rivers of butter running off of that mountain of mashed potatoes. And uh, absolute... Himalaya of, of green beans, almondine. And whatever else is in your, your stuffing that is like out of control. And you know the apple pie is there and the ice cream in the freezer. And it's just out of control. And the smells as you walk into the room is overwhelming, isn't it? Isn't it? And you sit down and you begin to eat. And then you eat some more. And the whole time you're eating, you're moaning and groaning about how great it tastes, aren't you? And before you know it, it moves from moaning and groaning because of how great it tastes to moaning and groaning because... <laughs> because the Cowboys are playing. Yeah, that's a good one. No, you're, it moves from moaning and groaning over, the, over what, you were, what, what, what was on the table to what? Moaning and groaning over what's in your belly, right? As you're starting to unbuckle the belt. And there's dessert yet to come. And you've got to eat the dessert. And so you slam the dessert with the ice cream, the apple pie a la mode. And you have to go for the other stuff too because it was made for you. And before it's all done, 
you know what? You find yourself, you find yourself where? Once it's all done, you find yourself real quickly going where? Into the, cou- in the living room, onto the couch, right? And you're all sitting there, and you're not sitting upright. You've kind of slouched down into the, into the sofa a little bit. Why? <laughs> because the cowboys are on. You slouch down in the table, in the chair, in the sofa. Why? Because you think that if I slouch down a little bit, it'll be a little bit less uncomfortable. You know what you are? You're filled with turkey and gravy and mashed potatoes and everything else. And then finally, the blessing of sleep during the Cowboys game comes on. Right, Tom? <laughs> because of that, whatever it is, dopamine or whatever it is in the, whatever it is, in, in the turkey. And you fall asleep. So you don't have to watch that, that horrible show. What's the point? You're filled, aren't you? Like if somebody came back in an hour later with, with a, a beautiful, absolutely gorgeous slice of breast of turkey, you'd be like, what would you say? I can't eat anything else. I am so stuffed. Right? You're filled. Right? There's no room for anything else. You're filled. That's what it means in verse 52. The people are filled with joy. And the reason why they're filled with joy is because they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled with God. They're filled with, with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. Except for one thing. This is not a Thanksgiving dinner. Is it? Did you see 50 and 51? 50 again. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. And the reason why he identifies these uh, devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city is because, frankly, this has been the same all the way since the beginning. Hasn't it? Do you remember uh, my big fat Greek wedding, if you saw the uh, movie? If you saw it. The, the, the wife says what? The man is the head of the house, but the wife's the neck. And she turns it whichever way she wants to. Right? I mean, everybody laughs about that. But hasn't that been the way it's always been? So often? All the way to the beginning, right? Eve. Hey, Adam. I'm not blaming the woman, right? I'm not blaming. The Bible tells us very clearly that fall came because of who? Adam. But too often, that's the case. Why, women, why, does, it sing, why, does, why does Luke single out the women? Well, because the women are getting involved. The, guys, the leaders are getting the women involved because they know that in getting the women involved and all incited, what happens too often? What? Yes, well, it spreads because they get their husbands involved get their husbands all fired up as well. And you find here that very thing, devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, the link is very clear there. And what do these people do? They stir up what? This isn't Thanksgiving going on, is it? This isn't a Thanksgiving meal going on. They stir up what? Persecution. The persecution in Antioch raises its ugly head Persecution, and it specifically targets who? Paul and Barnabas. And how strong is that persecution? Drives them right out of the city. It takes a lot to drive them out of the city, doesn't it? You know it would take a lot. They're driven out of the city. Verse 51. But they shook the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And that, in the Middle East... That was a very significant statement. It's a statement that says, I want to have nothing to do with you. I, have, I want to have nothing on my, my person that reminds me at all of you. It's almost like you're saying, by shaking off the dust off your feet, you're saying, you're dead to me. 
and you get no blessing. And you get nothing that I have to offer you ever again. This is a horrific condemnation from Paul and Barnabas. In effect, when he shakes the dust off his sandals, Paul and, off their sandals, Paul and Barnabas are saying, the gospel is dead to you. You will never, ever hear of it again. You are done. It is interesting, as they go to Iconium, though, that you find all the disciples, including Paul and Barnabas, doing what again? Verse 51? Or 52, I mean? Filled with joy. Wait, no, shouldn't they be grieving? Shouldn't they be grieving over the situation? No. They are rejoicing. They're full of joy. They, like 48 says, they're rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. How could they do that? That doesn't make sense to me initially. Does it make sense to you initially? I mean, I would think grieving would be really appropriate here. Rejoicing that some got saved, right? But grieving. But you know what informs them? The truth what God has revealed has informed them. This takes us back to 48. And back in 48, what do you see? At the end of 48. Tom, would you read that once again? The end of 48? It's an interesting statement that, that Luke throws in there. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word appointed here is really interesting as well, by the way. The word appointed carries several ideas, all intertwined. And the idea is, it's referencing someone of authority. Someone with, with dramatic authority. We would say, biblically, what kind of authority? Starts with the word S. Sovereign authority. Someone with a so sovereign authority. The idea of the word appointed is someone with sovereign authority has assigned something to someone. That's the, what the word literally means. Someone with a sovereign authority has assigned someone or someones to something. What Luke records here is the Gentiles hear this, they begin rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were, what? Appointed, assigned by someone sovereign, as many as were assigned to what? Eternal life believed. The plain reading of the text, if I may say this, I know it gets controversial for some people, but the plain reading of this text is there's an order. You can't miss the order. The assigning takes place before or after the believing. Before, it's very clear. As many as were appointed, believed. As a matter of fact, you have to recognize, if you're going to read the plain reading of the text, is that the assigning guaranteed the believing. The assigning caused the believing at the right time. You have to recognize that. The order is very important. There would be no sense in which it would make any sense that the assigning takes place after, which I've heard a lot of people say. That makes no sense. That'd be kind of like me today saying as the pastor, because I have authority to marry, don't I? Don't I? I have been granted authority to marry people as a pastor. It would make as much sense as me saying, Tom, you can marry that girl sitting next to you. You've got to get to know her a little bit before you marry her, but you can marry her. Would that make sense? Would that make sense at any level that I just assigned 
Tom to marry Linda? Would that make any sense at all? Nobody's responding. Would that make any sense today for me to say that? You'd all look at me like I have a, a loose screw. Now, I, I know you do anyway, but it wouldn't make any sense. Would it make sense to you, Linda? Would you think I'm a nutca- nutcase if I said that today and meant it? Well, yeah, of course you would. That wouldn't make any sense at all. Now, I don't have an authority to assign you to marry her back before you married her, but you get my point. If we add to the equation that I had the authority to say, Tom, you need to marry and you will marry Linda, that, again, would make no sense after the fact, would it? (laughs) Tom said it'd be divorced from reality. You get my point. So it's very important that we recognize that. This is all being informed by this deep theological statement that's being made. Why are they rejoicing when, when all they're experiencing is persecution? And the, it's just going to get worse. Why are they rejoicing? Because a sovereign being, the God of the universe, appointed those who ended up believing. Wow. That means if I, I believed, I didn't believe because I chose to believe. I believed because I was appointed to believe by God's mercy and his own good pleasure. And it causes me to rejoice and be full of joy in the Holy Spirit. Amen? We got to close because I'm over time and I'm trying to keep it, keep it short. My wife's already flashing the time at me. Wow, what a great passage. Let's pray and then we can sing songs of rejoicing and then go from here rejoicing. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. I pray that you will help us to recognize we are here today worshiping you for one reason, because you have moved. You have acted from before the foundation of the world. And in a closer sense, we are here today worshiping and enjoying your word and enjoying uh, worshiping you because you declared that the gospel should go to the Gentiles. And we being Gentiles have received. So Lord, I pray that you will help us. Not that we will have some joy in our salvation and in you. Lord, I pray that you will work mightily in us so that our joy will be full. That we will be full of joy by the Holy Spirit. For your glory and praise. In your name I pray. Amen.